This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Welcome to the latest edition of the AJ Bell Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth, and this week I'll be running through the latest market news, including Terry Smith's decision to finally invest in Amazon and why THG and Darktrace have quickly gone off the boil. Laura Suit is with me, and she'll be looking at how mortgage costs are going up. I will, and I'll also be celebrating the 10th birthday of the Junior ISA, and we're going to be looking at where parents and grandparents have been investing the money for their little darlings. We're also going to look at forthcoming stock market listing of electric vehicle group Rivian and why two FTSE 100 chief executives have resigned this week. And later on in the show, Dan is going to be finding out why waste recycling group Biffa has expanded into the world of surplus food and household goods. And Jenny Owen is back on the show and she's going to be discussing all things that go bang in the dark. But first, Dan, let's start with markets as ever. What's been going on? Yeah, let's start with THG. So this is perhaps better known to some people as the hot group. So for a while, this was kind of a stock market darling. Investors were rushing to own the stock in the belief it would play a key role in helping product manufacturers sell direct to consumers. But now it seems to be losing fans at an incredible rate. So the shares peaked at nearly £8 at the start of the year, but now they're trading below £2. Market sentiment has really turned against this company. So the latest setback is BlackRock selling 58 million shares. Now, asset managers rarely sell after a stock has already fallen a lot unless they've lost confidence in the business and or that they found something that completely changes the investment case. And I think that the backlash against THG seems to centre on the fact that people perhaps are bought into the hype without paying attention to valuation. And now that difficult questions are being asked about costs and what happens when the business is broken up because there's plans to split into three different entities, I think the investors just simply aren't getting the answers that they want and or perhaps they're not liking what they see. So on a similar note, we've also had a, a, a change in sentiment towards cybersecurity group Darktrace. Now, its IPO price was cut amid investors' concerns over its links to Mike Lynch, who has been accused of fraud. But once it hit the stock market earlier this year, the shares soared, hitting nearly £10 only a few months ago. And it actually got a place in the FTSE 100, replacing Morrison's, which has just been taken over. But then we had the broker Peel Hunt come out with a big sell note and the stock price started to fall. Now, we've just seen a couple of more shareholders dump some stock. And I just think that you know, investors are sort of getting, um, you know, they back this business thinking it was very fast growth. And now the market sentiment's completely changed. I think this, you know, there will be some people who are really frustrated at this situation. You know, one minute, these companies are flavor of the month. The next, everyone hates them. And then investors have got to make a difficult decision about whether they ride this out and hope to come out better or if they also cut their losses now. Yeah, certainly. Um, So, Dan, you've also got some news on Fundsmith, which is one of the most popular funds among UK retail investors. So I feel like investors lap up any news on what Terry Smith is doing with his funds. So what's happening? Yeah, absolutely. So Terry Smith is the is the fund manager of the Fundsmith Equity Fund, which is now twenty seven billion pounds in size, and he's bought some shares in Amazon for the first time. Now, this is really interesting because Terry Smith is quite often um, had negative things to say about this business, and you know this is 
um, really a sort of a U-turn here because actually we had we had a shareholder meeting um, in January, and you know someone in the audience stood up and said, "What well, you know? Why aren't you investing in Amazon?" And and Terry Smith actually played down its attractiveness and said, "You know the retail arm earned you know, really small profit margins, about two percent." But actually, the, 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 they were nearly to 30% at the um, the AWS, which is the Amazon Web Service cloud computing arm. And he sort of said, you know, if Amazon was to split off AWS, they'd be very interested in owning just that bit. But they didn't like the, own, the idea of owning a company where one business was cross-subsidizing another business that's barely profitable. So I don't know, you know, the, the, all we know is from the, the information that Fundsmith have issued that just said we've made an investment in Amazon. There's no sort of rationale, but I'm sure it won't be long before Terry Smith goes on the record as why he sort of changed his mind. And you now I just think that this is one of the UK's most popular funds and it's had another pretty good year. So, so far in 2021, it's just over 15% return. That's to the end of October. Um, you know, that's a fairly good performance if you compare it to historically what you might make on the on on from equities but it actually it's just a little bit behind the msci world index which is perhaps a benchmark for global stocks and that's up uh, around about 19 percent over the same period and so talking of amazon that neatly uh slides into the company is gearing up a lot of money to put into one of the big new companies in the electrical electric vehicle space isn't it yeah, that's right. So we've got um, the company called Rivian is coming to the US stock market potentially in the coming days. And you know, there's been chatter that could be worth as much as $53 billion. Um, now, Amazon is one of the big shareholders who already own a big chunk of Rivian, uh, about just over 22% of the business. And it's indicated it's going to buy even more stock once it hits the stock market. Um, and, and this is really interesting because, you know, Rivian is is yet another business with, you know, it's tailoring into uh, a, a, an industry which has big growth prospects, but Rivian itself doesn't make any money. Um, you know, I think investors are going to have to look at the look at this and say, um, I'm going to, you know, if I want to buy the shares, I have to have faith in the, you know, the future, um, you know, the jam tomorrow story here. So it actually incurred nearly $1 billion losses in the first half of this year alone. Um, but what it's actually doing is spending heavily to build out its capabilities to mass produce its range of electric vans and trucks. And it, actually, it has a really important order already with Amazon who has signed up to have 100,000 custom-built delivery vans for its logistics network. So outside of this Amazon deal, there isn't much in terms of um, big sales elsewhere. So I think investors will look at this and say, yes, it's got the backing of Amazon. It's got Amazon as a big customer. But, but you know, there isn't that customer diversification. But, you know, I, I think, I, I don't know, Laura, are you a fan of um, the TV show with Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman where they go on their motorbikes around the world, long way mm, around? No, you, have you ever seen any of those? No. No? I've lost me there. <laughs> so they're, they're really good watch. And their latest ones, they, they changed their mind and said they wanted to do everything electric. So they got some electric motorbikes. And then they said, well, all the support vehicles we need as well need to be electric. And they used Rivian vehicles. Um, and, you know, they really were put to the test, uh, very tough environments that they were driving through. And so 
you know, I, th- I think that sort of you know, perhaps helped put the Rivian brand in front of lots of people who may not know this company. And I think this stock market listing will do even more so to raise its profile. And, you know, Tesla and Ford shares have all gone bananas uh, because people liking the electric vehicle opportunity. So I do think that there will be a lot of interest when Rivian does join the US market very, very soon. Yeah, because it's not a household name over here, I would say. And um, most people won't have heard of it. But you're right. A stock market listing is always a good way of kind of bumping up the profile of a company as well, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, But before we move on to the next bit, there's one last bit of market related news. And it involves some revolving doors, doesn't it? Some pretty big companies. Yeah, so we've had news that Barclays chief executive, Jez Daly, is standing down. Now, he was the ninth FTSE 100 CEO changed this year. But actually, as we're recording this, we've just had number 10 as well. because we've got news that Mark Kutifani is going to step down after nine years in charge of the mining group Anglo-American. But Jess Daly has quit Barclays following an investigation into his previous role at JP Morgan, where he acted as a private banker to the disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein. Um, you know, so I think people look at this in sort of, I don't know, two ways. Look, I, th- I think that you have to look at w- what has Jez Staley achieved since he took the top job at Barclays in 2015. You know, profitability has improved, the balance sheet's stronger. And actually, he did quite a bold thing. He was fighting off an activist investor, Edward Bramson, who wanted Barclays to spin off its investment banking arm. But actually, the decision to keep that has been you know, really vindicated because the latest results from you know, banks across the UK and the US were all very good because they've all had very bumper earnings in the investment banking arm because that's all been driven by these lots of deals that be going on, this big M&A boom that we've seen. So um, I think there will be some people who are perhaps might be a bit disappointed that um, Jess Daly is no longer with the bank. But so if, if you think that the you know, 10 people leaving FTSE 100 companies uh, in terms of chief executive role, it sounds a bit out of the ordinary. It's not. It's actually there's there's been a sort of a, a post 2000 average of 13 changes a year in terms of people running FTSE 100 companies. And, and so, you know, this year we've seen uh, changes at companies like Lloyd's, Glencore, um, and there's going to be, you know, there's a change announcement not quite happened yet at Burberry. Um, and I think it's just natural for these these people to be in a role for, say, five or six years. Um, they, they come in, they put their stamp on, um, try and you know, try and make changes, try and you know, push the business forward. And then they sort of hand, it's quite natural to hand over. So um, you know, I think people might be a bit shocked around the circumstances in which Jez Daly has left. But um, the fact that there's been you know, this turnover shouldn't be too much of a Shouldn't be too much of a surprise. And we might well see some more before the year end is out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Right, Laura, it's time to talk personal finance and how some bills are going to be more expensive for certain homeowners because mortgage rates are going up, which means many people's monthly income is going to be that bit smaller when they've settled up all the bills. What's going on then? Yeah, so this is because people are expecting a increase in the base rate from the Bank of England. Now, the timing of this is a little odd because we're recording this on Wednesday. The decision about the base rate is made on Thursday. So by the time some people might be listening to this, we'll know whether they raised rates or not. Um, But regardless, after the budget um, the other week, 
the likelihood of a base rate rise um, actually happening and happening sooner kind of increased. Um, and mortgage companies were very quick to react to this. So rather than waiting for any interest rate rise, they actually started raising their rates already. Um, now, what we have seen in the market is historically low mortgage rates. The amount that you could borrow at um, was minuscule in comparison to, to kind of history if we look at, at longer run rates. Um, so we're not talking here about a absolute dramatic shift overnight, um, but it is interesting that mortgage, mortgage companies have seen that um, markets are now kind of expecting a rate rise before the end of this year. Um, they've got ahead of that and they've started pulling some of their cheaper deals. Now, you can still get very cheap deals. So the best two year fix, if you've got an 80 percent loan to value, um, is still under one percent. So that is still very cheap, particularly to some of our older listeners who will have gone through the years of very high interest rates. Um, but that that doesn't mean to say that, that costs aren't going to rise and that is still going to have an impact on people's um, household bills. So the people, the group of people that are most affected are those that um, are on variable rate deals. So this is kind of tracker deals where your rate is a guaranteed amount above the base rate. And those people, if the Bank of England increases rates, will um, pretty much overnight see their mortgage rate rise. Um, and then to put that into context, so um, if someone had £250,000 mortgage, so that's their borrowing um, rather than their house price, and we saw a base rate rise to a quarter of a percent, which is kind of what's expected for the first move, um, then that would cost them an extra £228 a year. Now, obviously, if you have more borrowing, then any increase in interest rate is going to cost you more. So if you had £450,000 worth of borrowing, then that same base rate increase would be just over £400 extra a year. Um, and then if base rates base rate increases again to half a percent, which is the expectation for next year, um, then obviously that adds on more. So for that £450,000 um, of borrowing example that I gave there, it will cost £1,100 a year more. So that's not insignificant sums with the caveat that um, we're not expecting massive increases in base rate um, overnight. We'll see a kind of slow edging up of it. Um, so what people need to do is look at the kind of deal that they're on and assess whether they want to lock in and get a fixed rate now while rates are still cheap. Um, rates have gone up a little bit, but they're still very cheap and they're cheaper than they will be um, after the bank has increased base rate uh, one or two times. So um, it's just more a wake up call to say um, this is likely to happen now. People are expecting it to happen and it's going to have an impact on your monthly cost. So take a look and see whether you could save some money. And it's worth mentioning that the bank is meeting tomorrow, so in November, um, and then it meets again in December. So there are two potential times this year it could increase rates. We're not really expecting them to increase rates on both of those times. So what we're looking at now is potentially they could increase them this week or they could increase them next month. Or they might surprise us all and not increase them at all this year because that's the way they work. Yeah. Well, it sounds like... It's going to be some, you know, a good time to sit around the kitchen table, um, have a good look at your finances because you know it's not just mortgages going up, electricity bills going up, and 
you know, general cost of living, your food bills. Um, you know, I think just staying on top of your finances is incredibly important, particularly at times like now. Yeah, I agree. So we've got some big news for listeners. Laura and Danny have launched a second podcast called Money Matters. Its purpose is to help women take control of their finances. So Laura, tell us more. Yes, we have. And don't worry, guys, we're still going to be on this podcast and this podcast is still going to be as good. But um, the new podcast called Money Matters is very much aimed at encouraging women to get more involved in investing. So it's got a slightly different format to this one. We speak to kind of um, normal everyday investors and people and then we speak to experts in how to solve some of their problems Um and the, one of the first ones that we've got is um, Olympic gold medalist Georgia Taylor-Brown talking about her career, but also talking about the financial implications of being self-employed, being an athlete, having very uncertain income. And she's so interesting. She goes into a lot of detail about some of the anxieties that she has around money and the way that that industry works. Um, and we also speak to an expert from AJ Bell talking about other women who may be in that situation, obviously, sadly, not going to be many gold medalists out there, but um, people that are self-employed have more uncertain income and some of the ways that they can help solve that. Um, the other episode that we've got out is has got uh, Baroness Helena Morrissey on it, who is the chair designate for AJ Bell. She talks about her career in finance, which is obviously, particularly at the time that she joined, was very uh, boys club and talks about her finances and how she has navigated that through her life. Um, and we also speak to some great investors about what they're doing. So you can listen to it in all the same ways that you listen to this podcast. Um, so on Spotify, on your podcast app, or on the AJ Bell website. You just need to search for AJ Bell Money Matters. Well, it sounds brilliant. I cannot wait to give that a listen. That is your see- this evening's entertainment sorted for you. <laughs> Um, But let's move on to this week's special guest. So Michael Topham is the chief executive of Biffa, which I think we'll all know for their bin collection trucks. But actually, the company has branched out into a new area and it's focused on reducing household goods wastage and helping the community. So let's listen to that, Dan. So Biffa's best known for emptying the bins and recycling your cardboard. But in February, you bought a business called The Company Shop, which has got a great solution to food and consumer goods waste. So, Michael, can you tell me exactly what it does? Yeah, we I suppose at Biffa, we've um, for a long time, we've been trying to address the excuse me, the challenges of our customers waste and. Um, and over you know 20 years or so, we've evolved from essentially it being a, a landfill-based solution to one where increasingly, um, you know, recycling is now the dominant solution. And our customers, um, both for cost reasons, but 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 also for environmental reasons, are always wanting to see what more they can do. And we've had a realization, I guess, for a while that in many areas of, of our customers' um, activities some of the waste needn't be waste at all. And it's just um, that there isn't the right solution there to help prevent things from going to waste. And that's probably most pre- prevalent in food waste, where for a variety of reasons, um, customers uh, of ours in the food manufacturing and distribution sectors are having to put um, perfectly consumable um, food products into waste. Um, 
And uh, it's just that the solution didn't exist to stop that from happening. <clears throat> and in Company Shop, we found a business um, which has developed a really, really good solution, which sits alongside the solutions that Biffa provides in waste and recycling to help those customers um, re reduce uh, reduce their waste in, waste in the first place. And what it does is it works <clears throat> it works with um, manufacturers and distrib distributors and looks for where surplus produce exists. And by that, I mean things like production overruns or product which is perfectly fit for consumption, but maybe has got the wrong labeling on um, or the packaging is slightly incorrect or the product might be slightly off spec or there might be just um, it might be made for a foreign market um, where the, 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 the demand is no longer there. And at Company Shop, the business has developed a range of capabilities to be able to identify those surplus products take them through their distribution center and do the necessary things to enable that product to be fit for sale. So it can be relabeling, it can be repackaging, it could be scanning it to make sure it's food safe um, and then getting it um, fit for consumption and putting it into its own um, network of, of outlets. And those outlets are um, specifically membership based and in order to be a member you need to be a key worker such as uh, working in the healthcare or, or other emergency services uh, or charitable sector or to be an employee of the food supply chain itself so um, food manufacturers are keen to work with company shop because they're reducing waste they're saving money they're helping the environment by enabling this surplus product to still be consumed by a, a very worthy group of people um, uh, all at the same time, and um, and of course they get the money money back rather than having to pay for waste disposal. So it's a really great business model. It's something that fits perfectly with what we've been trying to do for our customers for years. And I guess it's just another step in the progress of of Biffer and of the waste management sector generally to to fully embrace what's called a circular economy, where where resources are hopefully put back into good use. Yeah. So, so this is not it's not um, sort of products that you might find in the supermarket that are sort of near their best buy date you know you, you're not dealing with that sort of stuff these are sort of products that have got a long shelf life is it well yeah i mean there's this there, it's not to be confused with what you would call a sort of back of store um surplus where supermarkets if they if they don't manage to sell the product they have in the store they have a pretty well developed um systems to make sure that hardly any of that goes to waste so they will initially discount products to, um, to make sure it's sold if they're unable to and it's very close to uh, consume by dates then they will donate locally to um, food banks and other charitable organizations that's really well established and that's not what company shop is about where we're operating a stage back in the supply chain in the food manufacturing and the distribution stage where product that's initially would have been manufactured for the supermarkets but he's never needed by them or can't be sold by them for a variety of reasons I said before. So it's helping those food manufacturers from having unnecessary waste. Yeah. So, uh, so in terms of the, the, the sort of the products you might get from a supermarket, is it things like, um, you know, that where they've not managed their own stocks properly, or it might be that, you know, I did see some comments about boxes of ice cream. Uh, the, the glue on the box was, not very good at holding it together so you've got lots of things falling out it saying a supermarket's freezer and they've got to find some way of selling those products 
but they can't sort of match them up again. Is is that sort of thing that you you find, or is that sort of not that not that common versus sort of getting stuff directly from the manufacturer? Yeah, no, we, I mean we wouldn't we wouldn't be able to, and 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 we don't. Not, nor would we really want to be involved at the kind of store level of helping to deal with problems there. And as, as I say, I think the supermarkets do a very good job of that. They've got every incentive to try and minimise the amount that goes to waste, both financially and environmentally. And I think they do a good job of it. We're a stage back, really. Where what you know, I mean, the food manufacturing and supply chain is is incredible. It's incredibly sophisticated. Um, these businesses don't work on very high margins, so they're very, very obsessive about efficiency. But in spite of all of that, there will always be, as part of a well-functioning system, there will still always be surplus. It's just an inevitability. Um, and, and effectively, what Company Shop does is it provides a role to make sure that that whole system helps, you know, help, is, works really. So it, it gives manufacturers the ability to trial new products to be able to produce to demand by the supermarkets and not be too fearful that if there's slight um, reductions in in orders and the surplus product, it needn't go to waste. So we see ourselves as part of a, you know, I guess the existence of a of, of a of a well functioning system, really. Yeah. So, so are you do you get these surplus products for free, or you actually have to buy them and then, um, you know, you sell them on for you know a, a slightly higher price. Yeah, so for the most part, we will we will be giving a financial value back. And that's, again, why it's so important. So rather than for the manufacturers, this be a cost of waste disposal, it's a revenue source. Now, of course, the revenue won't be as much as, as were they able to sell it to their main customer, the supermarket. And so they've got every incentive to not produce surplus in the first place. But where it does exist, it's far better to get some revenue from us rather than paying for it to go to waste. We then sell that product, as I said, to those members. And it's a deeply discounted price. So it's roughly about 50% of what you would pay um, uh, on the normal supermarket shelf. So it's quite an experience, actually, if you're a company shop member. You go into what, what on one level looks like a, um, a normal, normal-ish supermarket, but you'll see a whole variety of different products. You'll see products that were branded for multiple different competing supermarkets side by side you'll see some products that have been relabeled some that might say be in foreign language with an english language label over the top of it it's quite quirky and the members are uh, are quite passionate about what they're doing they love they love the bargains they get but they also love the fact that they're doing good by being part of this system so um and it all exists with the with the approval of not only the food manufacturers and the big brands, but also the supermarkets themselves, because they, they it's important for them to know that where their manufacturers are selling surplus product, it's not just going into a black market effectively where there's um, uh, there's no there's no control over it. Um, they feel they feel comforted to know they might have their logo on it, um, but it's been sold to a worthy group of people in a properly regulated and controlled environment. Yeah, so you say you sell to people like key workers, but are you also selling to um, perhaps you know lower earners, um, people sort of value sort of um, community hubs where they can potentially yeah, buy? Yeah, so the alongside company shop, which is a commercial enterprise, um, I think it's you know it's doing a very worthy role, but it is a commercial enterprise, and as I said, it's giving a financial rebate back to manufacturers and it's selling the products and then, and, and and making a profit in doing so. But alongside Company Shop, we have a social enterprise um, called Community Shop. And Community Shop is a 
uh, a different format, which is exactly as you described. It's more like a community hub. They're located in some of the most economically deprived um, areas of the UK. And what we do is we harness the effectively the, the generosity of some of our supplier partners who choose to donate some of the surplus stock rather than ask for a rebate on it. And we use and we use that produce and sell it at, at even more deeply discounted prices and use some of the revenue from that to help fund social programs. So what you'll see in a community shop is a, a, a very well stocked um, small format store selling very, very cheap products but also alongside it, a community cafe and some um, other space, hub space that en enables the community shop to run um, programs um, uh, just to, to, help, to help some of those families who are, who are, who are in need, such as through you know, the, the likes of budgeting and cooking and things like interview technique, helping them to access other support services and such like. So it's a really, really powerful model and it's self-sustaining. Ben, in using the generosity, as I said, of some of our key partners, such as Ocado and Nestle and others, um, and using surplus property, which is generally made available either by local authorities or by um, housing associations. Um, so I think it's a really, really powerful model. And it couldn't exist without Company Shop alongside it because it's Company Shop's scale and infrastructure that enables it to source the product and get it onto those shelves and make the whole thing work together. So how big do you think, um, you know, community shop as a sort of a, a business within side Biffa could get? I mean, is there sort of potential to scale this up quite a lot? Well, so company shop group overall, uh, we are seeking to grow by about 50% over the coming three to four years uh, through a program of store rollouts. We, uh, we, um, it's evident that there's enough surplus products in the system for us to be able to grow the, the business. Um, the, the, the company shop format, which is effectively the commercial side of it, uh, when we bought the business, had about, I think it was 12 stores, and now that's up to 14. So we've opened up a couple since we, since we bought the business this year, and we're hoping to get that up to 20 plus over the next few years. Alongside that, Community Shop has um, eight um, uh, eight stores and uh, and similarly wanting to grow as quickly as we can, but, but they have to grow in lockstep with, with one another, and Community Shop will... Um, its growth does depend on the ongoing generosity of uh, of the supplier partners as well to to provide the uh, effectively the the catalyst to be able to make the model work. But I think we've you know we're seeing more and more of that, and we know that our partners are um, they really like that mixed model of of, um, of company shop group in its broadest sense, being able to solve their surplus problems, help them reduce waste, and also give them a path to be able to do some effectively charitable giving, really to be able to. To, to use the power of that surplus to, to do some good in some of the more challenged communities. Yeah. So I think, you know, obviously owning this business may seem like a bit of a departure from sort of picking up bin bags, but you know, I guess it does play to Biffa's strengths, you know, such as recycling goods to, to use them again. So what are you seeing at the moment in terms of sort of recycling trends? Is there sort of a, a big increase in cardboard recycling, more people ordering stuff online and they've got, endless sort of amazon packaging just building up around the house well i think i think you probably know the answer to that question <laughs> i mean it's something that we're all uh, we're all guilty of i mean that it, it's interesting really I, I mean i've been in the industry for about 15 years or so and forever people assume that 
through all of our efforts around resource efficiency and being more environmentally aware that we will be able to reduce the overall amount of waste we create but but it doesn't seem to happen because where we where we make great inroads in certain areas we seem to create other problems in other areas so a couple of things that come to mind are, are that that you mentioned um you know home delivery e-commerce creates enormous amounts of waste thankfully i should say most of it's recyclable because it's mainly cardboard and um, another huge area of, of waste increase is is um take away food um and home delivery of food and you know it's the amount of food packaging which which is generally not very recyclable because it's food contaminated so their problem areas in, in other areas has been some great improvements made over time. Um, and and you know, there's lots and lots of examples of how the supermarkets have done a very good job in taking out unnecessary plastic waste and what have you. But I mean, cardboard is a very, very recyclable material. Um, so, you know, we shouldn't be too despondent about that in plastics and plastics is probably the most talked about issue. Um, we could talk about it all day. I, I guess the main point I would make is it's important not to fully demonize plastic. You know, there's, there are definite cases of very, very bad plastic, unnecessary use of it where it's not recyclable and where if it, if it doesn't get captured in the waste management system, it's, it can cause great harm to the environment. But equally, there's a, there's a, I, see, I see lots of examples where, where we're unnecessarily turning our back on plastic for other materials, which frankly just will not perform as well. They won't do the job in hand of protecting the product and um and, and they'll be more energy intensive to create in the first place so you know it's it's a really really complex debate at Biffa, we've we've invested hugely in plastic recycling um and and there's some real success stories there so for example we do food grade um plastic milk bottle recycling so the next time you pick up a plastic milk bottle off the shelves of a supermarket, spare a thought that some of those plastic molecules in that bottle, probably about up to 50% of them, were in a bottle two weeks earlier on that same shelf. That's what we do at Biffa. We, we take that bottle through the system, into a bin, into the back of a truck, through a sorting plant, shred it, decontaminate it, mel melt it, put it through 36 hours of laboratory testing and send it to a dairy and it gets made back into a bottle and filled up with milk again so there's a really great example where plastic milk bottles they work they absolutely work they're low energy intensity they're very easy to transport they preserve the product really well they're highly recyclable and yeah a lot of people will say oh i'm not using a plastic milk bottle anymore i'm going to go back to glass or i'm going to use tetra pack so good examples like that need to be celebrated and, and understood and lots of other examples, sadly, you know, that there are where we do need to deal with the problem and we need to eradicate plastic where we can. Yeah. Well, Michael, thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been brilliant to have you on. Pleasure. That's such an interesting interview. I've learned so much. I didn't know that half of that stuff existed. And it's um, interesting to hear how that kind of plays into Biffa's broader strategy. Well, let's move on to the world of junior ices, which are celebrating their 10th birthday. So, Laura, you've been doing some research into how useful these child savings vehicles are and where the money's being invested. Yes, so junior ices are celebrating their 10th birthday. They are 10. Um, they've been around for 10 years. And so lots of people will have used them to save money and invest money for their children. So I thought it would be really interesting to look at the most popular investments Um in junior ISA accounts. So we're talking about just on AJ Bell, you invest, so those customers. Um, there's a real mixture in there. There's a lot, some stuff that I would definitely have expected. So um, there's, for example, some broad global equity trackers. Um, 
that so Fidelity Index World, for example, or the iShares MSCI World ETF. So these are tracker funds that are going to cheaply track the performance of big global markets. So they get you access to the performance of lots of top um, companies around the world. That seems kind of um, I can understand that. I think that seems to make some good logic if you're investing over a long period of time. Um, there's some. Um, UK specific ones as well. So some kind of FTSE 250 or FTSE 100 trackers, um, which doesn't surprise because I think a lot of people still have a kind of domestic or home bias and want to be exposed to UK um, companies. Um, The top, Dan, can you guess what the top fund is that people are invested in? Um, I'd have to say Fundsmith or Scottish Mortgage. Ah, you've got both of them right. So Scottish Mortgage (laughs) is the top. And Fundsmith is the next. Um, So these are um, funds that invest in kind of long-term solid returning companies. Scottish Mortgage is investing in a lot of the kind of trends of the future. So Tesla is one of their holdings. um, And they also invest in a lot of um, smaller, unlisted startup companies. So if you're investing for a long period of time, for example, if you're starting your junior ISA for your kid when they're quite young, then that seems like quite a smart play. It's kind of investing in the future that your your kids are going to live in. Um, the surprising one that I found in there that was pretty high up the list is Tesla. So buying Tesla shares in a junior ISA. Now, that is probably taking a very long-term look at the, the future as well, I guess. You know, where, where could this business go serving, you know, it's active in an industry that is arguably still in its infancy, um, I guess it makes sense. So what, what, what do you think? Yeah, I think um, I think Tesla's quite a bit of a Marmite company, isn't it? Some people just dismiss it as um, not really having uh, the financials to back up their valuation at the moment. Others think that it's a pure trend of the future and that if you invest now, then it's going to be the next kind of Amazon or Google of the future. So um it's interesting. I think it's good, but it is. I think it plays to that trend, like you say, of kind of future proofing or investing in in the companies of tomorrow. Um, and Terry Smith makes a second appearance in the list as well. Um, the Smithson Investment Trust is also in that list. Now, that's. I, I guess that's quite interesting. You know, Fund Smith as an asset management firm has developed such a strong reputation, and um, you, know, you know, Smithson is is the vehicle in which they invest in sort of medium-sized companies and, and Fundsmith Equity Fund is for the larger companies. So maybe people just look at that as, um, you know, they, they, they go well together in a portfolio. You're getting exposure to to different types of companies, but they're following the same investment process. It's all the same things that they're looking for. Um, but- and what's interesting, if we, the only other single share um so obviously all the others are kind of funds or trackers. So we've got Tesla in there. The only other um, stock that's in there is Lloyd's Banking Group. Now, I feel like you couldn't get much more different to Tesla in Lloyd's, a kind of old, um, been around for ages in a much older industry, a very different pick there. That That is really surprising. I mean, to me, that would suggest um, there's a certain type of investor who has been in Lloyd's for longer than they can remember. I mean, if you go back before the financial crisis in 2008, that stock was yielding, I don't know, 7 8% uh, in terms of dividends. 
uh, when the crash happened, from from I've spoken to so many different investors over the years, I've always asked this question: Did you hold those shares in Lloyd's during the crash and afterwards? And they and and almost everyone said yes because they said, "I'm hoping that at some point." It'll get back to the days where this is one of the biggest yielding stocks. So maybe it's just, it could be the parents, or it could actually be grandparents investing for their grandchild in a junior ISA. Just got that view that Lloyd's is the stock that you need. Um, you know, but it, it, it is a surprise. Like you say, it's you know, we've got Lloyd's and Tesla. Everything else is funds. So diversifying your exposure, you know, spreading your risks across multiple things. And um, I think if you're investing for a child, uh, you know, you obviously got a long term view. So maybe I can understand why people might want to put bets on single stocks. Uh, Equally, it's a real easy option to put money into a fund, spread your risks. And perhaps you don't need to think about it too much. You can just feed some money in on a regular basis and go about living your life, hopefully building them a nice nest egg. But um, I guess, do people treat junior ISA portfolios differently to, a, a, say, your own pension or your own ISA? That's probably a conversation for another day. But, um, you know, these these are really interesting findings, though, that you, you've got from the sort of the, the child savings wrapper of choice. Yeah, I think it is interesting. And you're right. I think we should look at, because um, I'm sure you and I have got personal experience of kind of investing for your children, investing investing for yourself. And are you going to take more risk because they're potentially going to have the account for longer? Or are you going to play it a bit safe because you don't want to risk their future nest egg? Hmm. Yeah, definitely one to, to talk about another time. So it's time to bring on Jenny Owen with her money stat of the week. Given that this episode is going out around bonfires night, Jenny's here to reveal how much we're all spending on fireworks. Yeah, so bonfire night is approaching and obviously fireworks are a huge part of the festivities. But did you know that you could be fined up to £5,000 if you set off fireworks at the wrong time? In England and Wales, it's against the law for anyone to set off fireworks between 11pm to 7am. This is extended to midnight on bonfire night and 1am on New Year's Eve, Diwali and Chinese New Year when 1am is the last time you can set off a rocket. On the spot fines are normally £90, but several councils, including Brent and Sheffield, say residents can be fined five grand. Firework displays don't come cheap even without a penalty charge, with a show generally costing £500 a minute. And the London New Year's Eve uh, display costs about £2.3 million to put on. The most expensive show broke the Guinness World Record last year in Dubai for New Year's with 500,000 fireworks exploding in only six minutes. And it cost a whopping $6 million. Or if you're just looking for one big bang, the most expensive single firework in the world is found in Japan. It weighs in at 406 kilos and costs 1,150 pounds. So it's hopefully a bit more thrilling than a Catherine wheel that sadly stopped spinning halfway through, which I'm sure we've all seen. That is an extortionately expensive firework. And I want to see what it looks like when it's lit. Me too. I have no idea what it looks like. So uh, everyone's going to be uh, Googling the the biggest firework in the world. So that's all from us this week. Uh, next week, we've got Triodos Bank on the show. So they're explaining um, more of the move to people moving their finances to greener options and how they fit into that. So catch you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes. 
and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor. Thank you.